Lords of Limited is proud to be brought to you in part by StarCityGames.com. Not only are they the home of the top content and coverage on the web, they're also the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies. For more information, visit StarCityGames.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, we haven't gotten a chance to talk Theros Beyond Death much. We've both played a ton. I'm excited to pick your brain about this format. Ditto. This is one of the most exciting and honestly, like, easy times as a content creator is the early days of a set just because like i'm very hungry for content i'm very hungry to like devour the set and get into it and uh i think one of the perks of doing this podcast is that i get to talk to you every week about magic cards and get to pick your brain so i'm excited to do that as well absolutely i have so much i want to get out of my brain into the world all right well let's take care of a little bit of housekeeping stuff first and then we will dive into the set so you want to check in on the trophy leaderboard first do we have to you're doing fine Look, I have so much sympathy for you. This is how I start every set. So I am 10 drafts deep. Uh, I have a 19 and 11 overall record, one trophy and a 63% win rate. Yeah, you're that's totally fine. And I just happen to be the one who started off hot this time rather than Ben who starts off hot every single other set. So I am 10 drafts deep as well. 23 and seven, five trophies, a brief, brief stint at the top, at the very top of the MTGO trophy leaderboard, uh, 77% win rate. Heck yeah, you are. You are crushing it. Yeah, I think, uh, I don't know. It just feels like the set is is working out for me early, but I don't want to take a ton from just these, this early spike. You know, I'm sure this will all level out and I'll, I'll end with my 67% win rate like I always do. So here's my take right now, currently. Let me ask you this. I, mm-hmm. I feel similarly to about this format as I did to Dom. Does this format remind you of Dominaria at all? That's a really interesting question. Can you describe why it reminds you of Dominaria? I think it's slower. And I think there's I think there's cards that matter a lot, like in certain games. And it's hard if you don't have an answer to those cards. It's very difficult to compete. Mm-hmm. And I think blue might secretly be like really good. Like it took everyone a while or me a while anyway to get on board the just draft blue train. And I think blue might be very good in Theros Beyond Death. There's a lot of decisions that matter in the games that are not warped by bomb rares that go unanswered. I, I just think there's a lot of things that are similar about it. Yeah, that makes sense. I haven't really thought about it. It does the like slow grindy nature of it and the like single cards mattering a lot. That all makes a lot of sense to me. And that's a good correlation. I'll be interested to see if I how, how I feel about that as the set progresses. All right. So we also got to check in on our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where folks go to give back to the show if they so choose. But if they do so choose, they do get access to a whole mess of stuff depending on how much you give back. But base level is to get access to the Lords of Limited Discord, which is popping off. We talk about it each and every week. I would love to shower it with more praises this week, but we have way too many people to welcome to the fray, Ben. Each and every week, we're going to welcome our new patrons. Ben's going to join me in helping to welcome along Sam, Jose, Ian, Barry, Andrew, Curtis, Damon, Andreas, Sydney, Carson, Luke, Adam, Glenn, Ben, shout out to Ben, Matthew, Joris, Michael, John, Jory, Lindsay, Sean, Laura, Chris B, Henry, Daniel, Spencer, Ryan, Jacob, Andy, Samuel, David, Stephen, Wazy, IMK2, Mylan, Matthew, James, Chris P, Trance, Benjamin and Dan. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate your support. Holy patrons, Batman. Those people know what's up. They want to they want to learn Theros Beyond Death. I am telling you, I, I can just literally spend 
a half an hour <laughs> reading sections of the Discord, like Theros Beyond Death card evaluation or big picture or just looking at the trophies and trying to see. It's so much good information at the start of a format. Agreed. All right, well, let's dive right into it. Let's talk about some general format questions or some big picture stuff, and then we'll get into uh, specifics on cards that we've got in our hands on and then maybe end things with a roundtable. Okay, so format questions, Ben. Prince or Pauper? This is a hard Prince for me. Uh, there are some bombs that feel pretty bad on the other side of the battlefield. And I think that the worst part about them is that they snowball so hard so that if mm-hmm. you don't have the answer right at the right time, it's pretty hard to come back. But there is a good amount of removal at common. And I have made a rule for myself that I need to make sure I have ways to interact with those bombs in my deck. And I think that's helped some as I've been going on. Yes, I agree that this format's very princely, but I do want to just throw out that it does remind me a little bit of War of the Spark in the sense that I think it's probably going to be overblown how good the bombs are in the set because there are ways to interact at common. I think the format is about board presence. That's at least how I'm approaching it. Like I really want a good curve of creatures in my decks so that a single card doesn't just negate an entire game of magic. So here's the difference between those rares in War and these to me. Those rares were planeswalkers by and large, and you mm-hmm. could attack them. And you you can't really attack the rares here. Like you can't attack a dream trawler. No, you can't. Oh my god. That and a whole other mess of cards, I think, are pretty egregious. But Dream Trawler, I think, is maybe top of the heap as like most difficult to interact with rare. And it's at rare, it's not mythic, which is a bummer. Yeah. So very princely, but I do think I do think there's ways to combat it. And I do think as we go along in the format, you know, you value removal more highly, we figure out how to build the archetypes more correctly. And I'm sure it's and it has been a very good format and a very deep format when the games haven't suddenly ended via a rare. Yeah, the gameplay and maybe it's just like early in a format, figuring stuff out is complicated. But this has felt like one of the most rewarding gameplay formats in a while. I agree. There's a lot of decisions and a lot of decisions that matter. Yeah. All right. Number of lands. What do you think about that? I've been playing 17 mostly. I've gone up to 18 occasionally for colored sources. I have not done any 16 lands yet. Yeah, I've done 16 to 18 so far in 10 drafts. Um, uh, DC Sports 8, Zach Dubin told me that he, I think, trophied with a 14 land deck. I don't know if he was memeing or not, but... uh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Maybe there's some pretty low to the ground stuff. I mean, I had my most aggressive deck. I just ran 16 lands in. So one, I feel like sources are coming up a lot like mana is a real consideration for me in, in terms of maybe just coming off the heels of throne of eldraine but just thinking about the number of sources that i need like sometimes i just find that i need to run 18 lands so that i have a 10-8 split rather than 10-7 or 9-8 but i also have found that like you know we talked about there's not a lot of mana sinks but as we're going to get into in a little bit escape is a huge part of this format i mean it obviously should have been uh, and it was on our radar. I just kept being like, I'm not sure how much you're going to be able to do this, but it's very, very present. The graveyard has a lot of play to it. And I think being able to escape multiple times, even just the same card has proven to be a pretty good mana sink late in the game. Um, so I, I've, I've found that I have ways to use my mana in a lot of decks. I agree. The, the most jarring thing about mana to me coming off of throne has just been how bad mana bases have felt. Because by and large in Throne of Eldraine, I never felt like I was running a bad mana base. I thought I had good mana and I thought my mana was an asset to my deck. Mm-hmm. Here, I felt like mana has been difficult. There's a lot of double colored pips and I don't feel like there's a lot of ways to mitigate 
the double colored pips because they're on some really good cards. So I, I just have found myself mulliganing and or missing colors of mana a lot more than I did in Eldraine. Yeah, like I think, you know, I've, I found myself being in like a base black deck and then you open up Phoenix and you're like, well, I have to play this because this card is unreal. But if you're a base black deck and you're trying to run Phoenix, then you're just like in you have to run like 10 eight. Yeah, it's tough. There's just no other way to do it. Yeah. As far as format speed, where are you at on that? It seems slow for the most part. Uh, I think many people so far have been trying to catch as many streams as I can. Uh, many people have talked about games going to natural decking. I have experienced that on my opponent's side. I'm sure I'll experience that on my side as well soon enough. Um, escape just leads to really grindy games. I think there are some aggro decks out there. I did a trophy with a red white, like suit them up, Heliod's Pilgrim, find an aura style deck. But I don't think the aggro decks are the heroic decks that we thought they'd be the plus one plus oh effect has felt like pretty meh to me so far i agree yeah heroic has not panned out i think the best aggro decks are the suit them up with an aura and protect them so there's two cards that are very reminiscent of dive down there's Karametra's Blessing, the one white instant target creature gets plus two plus two. And if it was enchanted or an enchantment creature, it gets hexproof and indestructible. And there's also Starlit Mantle, which is the one in a blue flash enchantment aura that gives plus one plus one and hexproof to the creature. Both of those, I think, are key pieces in some of these aggro decks. Put an aura on your thing and try to ride it to victory. Yeah, I think the format speed has led to us feeling like the games are deep. That's what I've felt in both draft and sealed. Um, there's a lot of complexity when there isn't uh, just like a bomb rare that negates the game. Sealed even more so than draft has felt very much to me about resource management. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, like what do you mean in terms of like making sure you don't spew your remo removal or understanding when you can lose life or, or what? I think holding removal is has been a big part of it and just it feels like cards are trading for cards a lot and the person left with escape cards to bring back or that hasn't drawn as many lands just that the games often come down to trading resources trading resources trading resources okay i'm the one with something left i'm gonna win now yeah i agree with that so i want to talk about a big thing that has sort of confounded me here and we talked about this last week which was x1s there didn't seem to be a lot of them right i think we said there were only 14 or 16 in the set at common or uncommon, but there seem to be a lot of ways to hate on them, but it really hasn't felt that way. Like Elysian Caryatid is not dying a lot. I agree. My Elysian Caryatids have been alive and well. I don't feel bad about playing X1s at all. Yeah, I think perhaps most of it is sideboard material, like the two red spells that deal a single damage to stuff, but I really haven't felt like my X1s were in danger. So I wanted to just update that. Yep. Naturalize effects. You've been pretty hot on return to nature is Doomblade. You standing by that? That's my biggest takeaway. Well, I, I would say on day zero when we did the arena early access streamer event, thanks again to Watsi for inviting us to that. That was super fun. Um, I just kept being blown away by like, oh, this kills that. Like in my first sealed, I had a return to nature in my deck. And in the progression of those nine games, I used all three modes. I blew up an enchantment a bunch of times, blew up an artifact, and even exiled an escape thing from a graveyard. Like, I think the card is really, really strong. Card's very versatile. I'm happy with the first copy in my main deck, maybe a second copy, and would like to have access to up to three, I think, in the sideboard. Yeah, I think I'm on two main deck now and then access to like up to two more in the sideboard. I had an experience this week where I had two in the main and then was happily bringing in a third most of the time. So yeah, just like I think a third of the creatures in the set at common or uncommon are enchantment creatures, like just kills a lot. And there are a lot of very good enchantment creatures as well. Yes. 
and a lot of expensive enchantment creatures that it trades up on mana with. Feels bad if like you're dropping the hard to cast six, seven, the like three triple green, and then someone just goes cool, revoke or return to nature or whatever. So speaking of exiling things out of the graveyard with return to nature, escape has been pretty bonkers. Yeah, like, you know, I, I, I as I said, I anticipated I would be wrong with like being like, oh, how often is this going to happen? But it's very prevalent. It's a lot about what the games are, like when the dust settles, who gets to escape stuff is what you talked about. And I think especially when the exile number of cards is low, like three has felt pretty easy to do. Yeah, three has been the sweet spot. And I do think there's diminishing returns with the amount of escape creatures you have. Mm -hmm. I think like two to three really powerful escape creatures is better than like, you know, three rage hounds and a couple voracious typhons or something like that because then they're all competing with the graveyard for resources and the choking point for escaping to me has been getting the cards in my graveyard not having the mana to escape the thing yeah exiling the cards has felt like the thing that you have to work towards so i want to just shout out like the cheap ones that i've liked or cards that i've been very impressed by you know we were both pretty high on voracious typhon which is the four mana four four in green that escapes as a seven seven um really think both of us missed on farika's spawn this is three and a black for a three four and it has escaped for five and a black exile three cards it comes in as a five six and then your opponent has to sacrifice a non-gorgon creature that card has blown me away. Lots of people saying that is the top uncommon in the set. Yeah, I think I'm I'm there right now. And I've also been pretty impressed by Loathsome Chimera, which is the three and a green four one. And this also has a four and a green escape exile three cards and it comes in as a five two. That just like, again, X ones haven't felt that bad. And this has a cheap, pretty powerful threat to get back is uh, is pretty good. Yep, I agree with that one. An Underworld Rage Hound has been very good in aggressive red decks, not even necessarily having to have an escape or a self-mill theme, because when you're aggressive, you're just going to be trading stuff off with the opponent because you're putting them in situations where they have to trade. And then after the dust settles, being able to bring back a 4-2 a lot of times is really backbreaking. Yeah, and also Underworld Charger, which is the 3-mana three 3-3 three, three in black that can't block, and at that escapes as a 5-5. Five, five. That's felt like quite a potent threat as well. Any early frontrunners for you in terms of like archetypes you've liked or not liked, either on your side of the battlefield or your opponent's side? I have been very impressed by green-black when it comes together all the way. And by that, I mean, feels like a lot of people are trying to draft green-black right now because it's a pretty obvious frontrunner and there's a lot of talk about escape being busted. So I think when you are in a, a seat where green-black is fairly open, it's a very, very, very good deck. Uh, Red Black Sacrifice has been super impressive. I think you've had some experience with that as well. Yeah, hopefully by the time this episode is out or, you know, a day after my Cards for Your article will be out and I'm going to outline that deck. I've drafted it three times. I feel like I have a really good handle on like what the pieces are. And it does feel like a classic steal your stuff Red Black Sacrifice deck. I've liked it a lot. I think it's pretty potent even without the portent of betrayal as well, mm -hmm. though, too. There's just a lot of interactions and a lot of shenanigans you can do with yourself. Yeah, I think that's like also such a great deck for escape because you're naturally filling your graveyard or you're maybe unnaturally filling your graveyard. Like you're able to uh, take advantage of your creatures dying and then also utilizing them to fuel escape later on. Yeah, and then I think the archetype I've been most impressed by from my opponents, and I've played it once uh, is like blue X control. I mm. think it's a really strong archetype in the format. I'm not totally sure on how you get into the deck because blues commons still feel pretty nebulous to me. So yeah. I think a lot of for me, at least right now, it's going to be either blue slapping me in the face or getting, you know, a really good uncommon or rare blue card to get me in the deck. But it's felt very good when I've played it and I've get, just gotten steamrolled by cards that just look 
like, I'm just thinking, how am I losing to this collection of blue cards? <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm still losing to it. So really excited to crack the puzzle of how to get into blue and how to draft the blue control decks optimally, because I think they're a very big part of the format. Yeah, I agree. I think blue is the color. Again, I felt this way at the beginning of Throne of Eldraine. It feels like I felt this way at the beginning of formats a lot. Blue feels elusive to me. Um, I have had a lot of success with blue-green constellation so far, but that feels like sort of an anomaly, or at least the, the pick orders for blue cards or the kinds of cards that are important for blue in that deck are different than in a control deck. Yeah. A couple little combos to look out for. I've talked about this on stream a lot, um, but there's a sweet interaction that I think is maybe not intuitive between Flicker of Fate and Dreadful Apathy. So Dreadful Apathy is the aura, the pacifism that you can pay two and a white to exile the creature. Um, and Flicker of Fate lets you target a creature or enchantment and basically blink it. So you like exile it, then it comes back into play. So if you activate the ability on Dreadful Apathy to exile your opponent's creature, and then in response cast Flicker of Fate on Dreadful Apathy. You get to then reassign Dreadful Apathy to another creature, and then you get to exile the initial creature still. Yeah, pretty sweet. Also, even without Flicker of Fate, Dreadful Apathy has been choice. Yeah, it really, really is great. Another combo, what's this one here? Shimmerwing Chimera and Starlet Mantle? What's going on there? Well, basically, you get to like, you know, flash in Starlet Mantle at some point to save a creature. Oh, and, and then Shimmer always has hexproof. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Like Shimmerwing Chimera then lets you pick up Starlet Mantle at the beginning of your turn. And then you basically just always get to protect your creatures from stuff. Yeah. And you've got last one here, Heliod's Punishment and either Timuret or Daxos. Yeah, so Heliod's Punishment is the one in a white uncommon that basically like takes care of a creature for four turns. But what it basically does is it loses all of its text, right? Except for the Heliod's Punishment, like tap to remove the counter from it text. Well, part of Timuret and Daxos's text is that its toughness is equal to your devotion. So if you put Heliod's Punishment on Timuret or Daxos, it'll remove that text and the toughness will be zero and it'll kill those creatures. Ooh, nice. Yeah, but there's not been, I feel like we've had a lot of sweeter, like two card, little unintuitive things to look out for. I haven't seen a lot of it in this format. Yeah, I've seen some some cute stuff. Yeah. So moving on to rares we've run into, I have had the misfortune of playing against lots of the most busted rares in the set. So I could consider myself a bit of an expert in this segment of the show. Uh-huh. So you've got Treacherous Blessing first up here, and I've had the same experience with this card, is that it's much better than it looks. It's basically a three-mana draw three in black-red with upside. Yeah, so Treacherous Blessing is the two and a black enchantment. Comes into play, you draw three cards. Whenever you cast a spell, you lose a life. And when Treacherous Blessing becomes the target of a spell or ability, you sacrifice it. Now, that's usually not super relevant, though it is important to note that like you can return to nature your own thing, and then it will die and then you won't have the lose a life thing. But honestly, in red, black, it's not, I'm not, not going to say trivial, but it's pretty easy to set up your deck to be able to sacrifice this. Um, in red, black, you can get access to final flare, which is the two in a red deal five, but as an additional cost to cast, you have to sack a creature or an enchantment. So that's pairs well, really nice. And then there's Scophos's war leader and slaughter priest of Mogus, which is the red black uncommon. Both of those can sacrifice enchantments to, you know, boost their power or whatever, give you those, uh, those sack outlets as well. So it, it's not that hard to end up with a couple of those effects in your deck. And then this really feels like you get really far ahead with draw three. Yeah, Scofo's War Leader has been a, a great overperformer in red black for me. The four and a red, four, five. And then you pay red, sacrifice a creature and enchantment to give it plus one, plus oh, and menace until end of turn. Just the sack outlet that's that big of a threat for five mana feels very strong. Well, and I think that and Lampad, it's important to have the cheaper 
activations for your sacrificing so that portent of betrayal doesn't really have this huge setup yeah makes sense so thassa's oracle has been pretty impressive out of my opponents i've seen this on the other side of the battlefield in some very good blue controlling decks this is blue blue for a one three when etbs look at the top x cards of your library where x is your devotion to blue put up to one of them on top of your library and the rest on the bottom in a random order if x is greater than or equal to the number of cards in your library you win the game I think this is a very real alternate win condition and plays super well in tandem with Sweet Oblivion milling yourself out because Sweet Oblivion never runs out of fuel when you're self milling because you're always exiling four and then you always have the four cards in your graveyard to escape to mill yourself again. So if you can get the board stable, I think that's a great way to turbo through your deck. And a lot of times, you know, there's just a lot of self mill running around in the format. It's very doable for this to be a sweet build around rare. And I think it really gets there. Yeah, I agree. I have not had the chance to play with or against it, but this card seems really sweet. Next up, I've got Shadow Spear here. This is the rare equipment that gives your creature plus one, plus one, trample and lifelink. This card has really overperformed for me. I mean, maybe not even overperformed, like I thought this card was going to be good. But I think this might just be like one of the best pack one pick ones in the set since it's colorless. Like it's going to make your deck 100% of the time and it's going to be great in your deck. Yeah, agree. Have faced it down and it has been very good. Gravebreaker Lamia is next up for me. This has overperformed what I would have thought. This is four and a black for a four, four lifelink. When ETBs search your library for a card, put it in your graveyard, then shuffle your library and spells you cast from your graveyard cost one less to cast in, in an escape focused deck. This is essentially five mana four, four lifelink draw one of the best cards in your deck. Yeah, that's exactly how it plays out. It's super rock solid. I thought it was going to be great, and it's even better than I thought. Next up, I've got a rare that I don't actually really like, which is Hactos the Unscarred. This is the like Achilles, red, red, white, white for a 6-1, attacks each combat a fable, and then it's got like the random number generator comes into play and gets protection from everything but either 2, 3, or 4 CMC. I've had this in two decks now, and it's really just kind of meh. Like, it hasn't impressed me at all and tacked on how difficult it is to cast. Like, I don't think this is a pull into red-white for me at all. Like, if I'm in red-white, sure, if this gets passed to me or I open it, but I'm not going out of my way to play Hactos. Yeah, that makes sense. Next up for me is Nessian Boar. I've had the chance to play with this a few times and against it. This is 3GG for the 10-6. All creatures able to block it do so. And whenever it becomes blocked by a creature, that creature's controller draws a card. So I was pretty leery of this uh, when we discussed it the first time in the Discord, I think. Or maybe maybe we talked about it on the podcast. But there's a lot of blowout potential here. But the thing is, you control when you attack with this card. So you can wait till your opponent's tapped out. End of the day, it's 5 mana for 10-6 worth of stats. And a lure effect that sometimes just wins the game if you're in a board stall. So all told, I think this is a very good card. And you should be pack one pick wanting it often. I concur, Ben. Preach. Next up on my list is Clothis, God of Destiny. This is the one red-green god. It's a 4-5. It's not a creature unless your devotion to red-green is 7. But the text here, it's basically like ill-gotten inheritance on steroids, and it hoses your opponent's escape. So at the beginning of your pre-combat main phase, you get to either... You get to exile a card from a graveyard, and if it's not a land, your opponent loses two life and you gain two life. This card on turn three just really makes racing nearly impossible. Next up, we got Enigmatic Incarnation, which is, I think, a very powerful build around in the right deck. Both of us gave this a low grade in the crash course, and I think we were both wrong. In my defense, I misread it. <laughs> I did not misread it. I'm just not intelligent. So this is two blue green for an enchantment at the beginning of your end step. You may sacrifice another enchantment. If you do search your library for a creature card with converted mana cost equal to one plus the sacrificed enchantments converted mana cost, put that card on the battlefield, then shuffle your library. 
So this ultimately is a very sweet build around. Works super well with the omens. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of enchantments lying around on the battlefield. So you're not even losing card advantage, it feels like. So the very first time you do this, it often feels like you've already gotten your worth out of the card. And then successive times just feel absolutely OP. You're just building up your board every time you're getting rid of an enchantment. But so many of the enchantments come into play and do stuff like Warbriar's Blessing or Iroas's Blessing or the Omens. Like that's what I didn't really, I didn't realize that. But then I also, when I read this, I thought it was like, I was like, oh, it's Birthing Pod, but for just enchantments, two enchantments. I didn't realize it was enchantments to creatures. So tutoring up creatures is much better. So I do think this is a great build round as well. Next up, I got to play with this card yesterday, Labyrinth of Scophos. This is the sort of Maze of Ith land, but it's honestly kind of better. The effect is wild. The So this is a colorless land, but you can pay four and tap it to remove a creature that is attacking or blocking from combat. This card, so one, it like negates auras. So when people are trying to go tall, I had someone have a Hydra's Growth on their creature. It got up to like a 200 something, but I just, <laughs> it, they like couldn't attack with it because it didn't matter. Um, so that was wild. And I wouldn't have put it in my deck. I was, you know, we have a little mini uh, chat of the, some folks that we're staying with when we go to the GP. We're like, you know, real tryharding this weekend. So we've got like a, even outside of the Discord, we've got our own sort of like private discourse going on. And Strix Familiar was like, you have to put this in your deck. I was like, Really? He's like, this is better than any of your 23rd, 22nd spells. I was like, okay. And I put it in and then it saved me that game and got me to 4-1 out of a pretty weak sealed league. Yeah, I will note, you should make your opponent use the mana for Labyrinth of Scophos. Like I was playing on Magic Online. I thought, uh, I'm, this is stupid. I'm not going to attack. They're just going to Labyrinth my thing. And then they cast something at instant speed and I felt like a dummy. So make your opponent use their mana when they've got Labyrinth of Scophos. Very smart. Next up is Thassa Deep Dwelling. This is the one where I've seen some sweet shenanigans. So Thassa is three and a blue for a six five enchantment creature god indestructible. You have to have devotion five for Thassa to turn on. And at the beginning of your end step, exile up to one other target creature you control, then return that card to the battlefield under your control and has activated ability three and a blue tap another target creature. There are some pretty sweet loop-de-doops you can do with Thassa Deep Dwelling. So one of the sweetest ones was my opponent had Laguna Band Storytellers. Is that the name of that card? The three, four that when it ETBs, you put an enchantment from your graveyard on top of your deck and you gain life equal to it. So they had that and they had a Myers Grasp. So they essentially, whenever they wanted, could draw Myers Grasp and they had some clunky expensive enchantment in their graveyards. They could gain you know, five or six whenever they wanted to. It was pretty sweet lock. So Thassa, there are some things you can do with ETB effects that are pretty disgusting. Also with Portent of Betrayal, you get to keep the creature because Thassa has the text that you return it under your control, not under its owner's control. So you get to keep the creature permanently. Yeah. So I think Thassa, you should not think you have to be deep blue to make Thassa good. I think Thassa is just good as three and a blue with her effect. And last up here, we got the Titans. Now, I've only had the chance of playing against Uro. Have you seen the red-black one as well? I have played with both of them, yeah. And I think they're not as good as you would think. The yeah. red-black one is certainly much worse than Uro, and I think Uro is not even that good. Escape 5 is a lot of cards to escape, and the effect the first one has is pretty medium on the front side, the red-black one. Just them discarding a card is not super relevant. And then even then... It takes a while for it to come back as a 6-6. Six, six. You basically have to be these color pairs and you have to have ways to get cards in your graveyard. And even then, they're beatable. I, th I think they're bees. Like, I think they're rock solid, but they're yeah. not windmill slam bombs. I think I agree with that. I played against someone who was on like turbo self mill blue green with Oro and they decked themselves both games. 
Ooh, wow. I was like, it like was, it came to a point. I was like, you can't attack with Uro because you're, it's not a May ability. You're just going to lose. Right. But they had no fear. All right. So that takes us into our movers up, movers down section. What do you got here in some of your movers up? Okay, Ben, I think I was right about these uncommon cycle of legendary devotion creatures, but most impressive to me has been Timurit chosen by death. I was really high on this card and I'm now even higher because it completely hoses the main mechanic of the set. It has felt really bad when my opponent has played Timurit. It like makes me really rethink the game because I'm like, well, I can't use my graveyard as a resource as I want to. And likewise, it's felt great being able to just go, cool, exile those. Makes racing tough because if you have creatures in the graveyard, you get to gain life. I think Timurit's very, very strong. I agree. Absolutely. First one for me on the list is a common. It's been pretty annoying. This is Sentinel's Eyes. Single white for the enchant creature aura. Enchanted creature gets plus one, plus one and has vigilance and then escape one, exile two other cards from your graveyard. So the plus one, plus one in vigilance has often been enough to enable attacks and stop attacks from me. And the fact that it continually keeps coming back is pretty annoying. And it's a way for white to use the graveyard as a resource. And one of the only ways to do so at lower rarity for white. And I think ultimately this is a pretty big pull into... Not not a pull into white, but when you're in white, you actively want like one to two copies of Sentinel's Eyes in your decks because so many of those white decks care about auras and want to be beating down. And I think Sentinel's Eyes fits well in both of those scenarios. Interesting. Keep, I'll keep my eyes out for it, huh? huh? Oh, my Lord. <laughs> All right. Next up on the list for me is The Binding of the Titans. This is the one in a green saga at Uncommon. Uh, chapter one, each player mills three. Chapter two, you can exile two cards from a graveyard. If they're creatures, you gain a life for each creature. And then chapter three, you get to return a creature or land from your graveyard to your hand. I, I was pretty skeptical of this card, but I think the format being slow has really lent it to be pretty strong especially on turn two when you don't really get to like enable your opponent's escape stuff you can usually stop it before they have the ability to cast it later in the game it's a little dicier but filling your own graveyard is nice then you get something back can help like you know you hit your land drops if you need them or just grab a creature out of the yard i found this to be a nice little card yeah i have enjoyed it as well next up on mine is riptide turtle the one on a blue flash defender o5 Card has been really overperforming expectations for me. So this feels like a very good removal spell in blue. The fact that this blocks almost all of the escape creatures without killing them is super relevant. And it's been very annoying on the other side of the battlefield. And I've started picking it a little bit higher. And I think you want in any blue controlling deck, I think you want two to three copies of this card. Yeah, I mean, Riptide Turtle says remove Voracious Typhon from the game. Like, that's effectively what it does. I don't think I would have put that together without watching the Team Series final on Sunday. Well, and I, I knew that going into the format, but I still didn't. I still hadn't, like, it's one thing to hear people say it. It's another thing to do it. Yes. I think. And the first time I saw it on the battlefield and the first time I had mine, I was like, yeah, this this card is real. Yeah, it really does hose. Especially, I think, the like the Chimera and the Typhon. It, it really, that's... That's its bread and butter dealing with those cards. Next up for me, I've got Nessie and Hornbeetle. I don't really know how I missed on this card so hard, like why this didn't make my top two green uncommons. This is the one in a green 2-2 at the beginning of combat. If you control a creature with power four or greater or another creature with power four or greater, you get to put a plus one plus one counter on Nessie and Hornbeetle. So this could be a 4-4 by the time it's able to attack, which is wild. People are calling this card Tarmogoyf for a reason. It does feel like a must deal with threat. Yeah, Horn Beetle has been very impressive for both me and my opponents. Agree completely. Next up for me is Venomous Hierophant. It's three and a black for the three, three death touch. And when it ETBs, you mill the top three cards of your library into your graveyard. 
This has been very impressive. I, I had it as a mover up, and then I think I'm moving it up even a little higher. So last night, uh, Amaz was Skyping into my stream. We had super interesting conversations about just draft theory in general, and Sam Black was hanging out in chat, and we were talking about top three black commons because Amaz was pretty high on the lamp pad, the one in a black, one three sacrifice a creature to drain one, gain one. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sam was like, wait, you don't think Venomous Hierophant is the third black common? And I was like, no, it's been impressive and I'm moving it up in my black pick order, but I'm not quite there yet. And he was phrasing it as four mana, three, three death touch draw a card, (laughs) which it's which it's very close to. Right. Because the, the choking point, the choking point on escape cards is getting the cards in your graveyard. So he said that's number three for him, like not particularly close. Yeah, I, I could I could see it. You know, I think spoiler alert, we had the Blight Breath Catablepus as our third one. But I think that Hierophant could definitely be the third black common. Like if you have escape stuff, it really does like it's like a dark ritual, right? It adds the three cards to your graveyard for you to escape something. Well, and the three, three death touch is also just a super rock solid body. Yeah. I mean, you, it's just like, how do you not one for one with this card? Right. And it can attack into Riptide Turtle. That's come up for me a fair amount. Mm, okay. Wow, the turtle has just been a, a menace for you. <laughs> it has. Turtle's been, turtle's been tough. We've uh, we talked about this card already. My next mover up is Farika's Spawn. That's the, the three and a black, three, four. Uh, escapes as a five six and your opponent has to sack a non-gorgon creature i do think this is the best uncommon in the set at the moment yeah it's very good my number four and these aren't in order necessarily but my next one is furious rise two and a red for an enchantment at the beginning of your end step if you control a creature with power four or greater exile the top card of your library you may play that card until you exile another card with furious rise so we compared this to colossal majesty or whatever the green enchantment was from M19 and it plays out almost exactly the same way and is exactly as powerful. This is a pull into red for me and a reason to put creatures with four or more power in your deck. Do you feel like you can put this in non red green decks? Yes. Okay. Because I've been seeing it and thinking of it as just like a red green gold card. No, there's enough red creatures with four power. There's a lot of black creatures that have four power. I think I think this card really gets there. Sweet. That's good to hear. My last mover up is Heliod's Pilgrim. This has now cracked the top three white commons for me, and I think should have been there initially. It's just really, really strong. I usually just underrate it as a three mana one, two, but the fact that you get to tutor up either a great removal spell or you get to go find some pants and that this is fine to wear pants because, you know, it's already drawn the card. So you're sort of mitigating that two for one factor. Heliod's Pilgrim is very, very versatile. Yep, I've been impressed by that card out of my opponents. Have not had a chance to play it myself yet. My number five is Staggering Insight. Oh God, this card. This is one in a blue for an enchantment aura. Enchant creature, enchanted creature gets plus one, plus one and has lifelink. And whenever this creature deals combat damage to a player, draw a card. I was pretty high on this coming into the format and I am way higher now. I think this card is an archetype in and of itself. Yeah, I agree. I mean, speaking of things that Heliod's Pilgrim goes to find. Right. Goes and finds this and blue white has flyers. You want to put this on a flyer and it's got the two cards that protect this the best Mm -hmm. with the instant speed plus two plus two and indestructible in white and starlet mantle in blue to give your thing plus one plus one and hex proof. And then there's lots of the stuff that just cares about getting auras on it. But it's not auras cheese. You have to have staggering insight like this is the thing that matters for the archetype to come together. Yeah, but this is definitely a pull into blue white. I think like it's like B plus levels of good. Yes, it's it's insanely overpowered and it's not it's not like the signpost uncommon it is the deck yeah agreed uh moving into movers down what do you got for us my number one is stern dismissal i'm just never putting bounce in my top three blue commons ever again what i know 
That's it's hyperbole. So this is single blue instant return target creature and enchantment and opponent controls to its owner's hand. It's very good. The first the first copy is very good. Right. Every blue deck wants one copy. Yes. And the second copy is playable. And then the third copy has pretty big diminishing returns. You might side them in against an aura heavy deck, but mm-hmm. the 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 format is not about going tall nearly as much as Theros was. Right. Yeah. I I would definitely agree. Like I'm happy to have one. But I think beyond that, I don't need to prioritize them because you only just want one. My first one here is a lot of me like walking back grades that we argued about. So this is just my bend point section. First one here is Chain Web Arachnir. This is the single green one two that escapes as a four five, and then it like punches a flyer for its power. Well, I have done some cuteness with like it comes into play, and then in response, like suited up with a flash aura to shoot something. So I did get to do that once. But by and large, I have not liked this card. It's just, as as you said, the front half is too unimpactful. Next up for me is Soul Reaper of Mogis. This is two and a black for the two, three enchantment creature that has two and a black sack a creature draw a card. This looked like it was going to be very good. I think the difference is between this card and what was going on in War of the Spark is there's not a lot of small creatures running around. There's not a mass running around. So, I mean, I think Soul Reaper is probably going to be good if you've got a tokens theme. But outside of that, it has felt very fillerish. Two, three as a body in this format feels very understated and pretty irrelevant on the battlefield. Yeah, I, I'm less I'm certainly lower on this card than I was last week because it wasn't our top three black commons and now it is not. But I do think it is good in, in the red black sacrifice deck. Like I think it's important to have at least one copy of that. But again, I don't think you need to prioritize it. I've got just sort of all the heroes uh, lumped together here, the red, white cards that when you target them, give your team plus one plus oh, that effect has felt minimal. I'm not been impressed by that deck coming together. I think it's like way too fragile. You have to like draw all the pieces. You have to draw your go wide stuff and your heroes and ways to target them in just the right order. That's not a recipe for success, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Those cards have all pretty much flopped, I think. Yeah. Moving on to my next one. This is Nessian Wanderer. This is one in a green for the one three with Constellation. Whenever an enchantment enters the battlefield under your control, you look at the top three cards of your library, reveal a land card and put it in your hand, put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. This card just doesn't really get there as a build around for me. So I was thinking you would pick this and build a Constellation deck. It's just not quite powerful enough to move into constellation four this is like c C plus ish for me if i'm in green constellation great i'll pick this up and it'll be a good card in my deck but it's not as powerful as i thought it was in my head i think that's partially because constellation wants to be an assertive deck and this isn't really an assertive card like again it's fine you're probably not cutting it from a a green x constellation deck but it's not like a, a reason to move into the deck as you said Next up, I've got Nexus Wardens. I don't think this is going to be the Lord Tupperware card of the format, Ben. This is the two and a green, one, four. With Reach and Constellation, you gain two life when enchantment enters the battlefield under your control. Um, so because X1s don't feel that prevalent and also don't feel like, you know, you're getting punished, like Elysian Cariad, it's not getting into combat. Like a one, four is bouncing off a lot of creatures when it blocks. And so it feels more like an O four. like unless your opponent has the two and a black to one harpy or whatever like this doesn't this isn't doing a lot of stopping stuff and so one four has felt like an oh four to me the card is also awkward because like you want to play it early so you get to gain the life but you don't want to play a one four on turn three you usually want to affect the board in a more meaningful way and so then 
this feels like when do you play it off curve? And then by the time you do, you don't have enchantments left to play. Like I just have not found this card to be particularly good. Yeah, it's been fine for me. Not great, not terrible. Next on my list is Nyx Herald. This has drastically underperformed what I thought it was going to do. This is two and a green for a two, three enchantment creature at the beginning of combat on your turn. Target enchantment creature or enchanted creature gets plus one, plus one and gains trample until end of turn. So this is very good if you're ahead and beating down. But at parity or behind the two, three body, I just have been super unimpressed with two, three as stats in the format. And I think this this is fine. It's a C, C plus ish type card. It's nowhere near B level or pulling me into green for me anymore. Yep, I agree with that. Last on my list of movers down, shout out to Ben. Flummoxed Cyclops is just a terrible card. You are absolutely (laughs) right about this. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Last on my list is Rise to Glory. That's the black-white gold card. So you three black-white for a sorcery, and you choose one or both. Return target creature from your graveyard to the battlefield, and return target aura from your graveyard to the battlefield. So one of the things I missed about this, and just as a word of caution, it's still a very powerful card. Auras, good auras are hard to come by. I think you really need Myers Grasp and Dreadful Apathy in multiples. Like you really want four auras that are good before Rise to Glory starts to be really good. Because when you're just casting it as five mana Zombify, it is not a powerful card. Yeah. Do you feel like you have to enable it too? Like do you, maybe this is also a shout out to the the Venomous Hierophant. Like I feel like oftentimes the like Raise Dead or Zombify effects are not great if you're not helping yourself along with them like relying on things dying in combat is not usually the way to fuel this kind of card yeah i think i think self mill certainly helps this card out but more the choking point for me more was getting the quality enchantments like one time i had this when i had four myers grasps and it was insane mm-hmm. and another time i was splashing for it and then i was like wait i only have two enchantments that i really want to get back with this how often is that going to come up it just didn't quite get there the other time so i just think you need to be aware of what you have in your deck and what you're going to need to draft highly when you've got Rise to Glory. Makes sense. All right, so we're going to attempt here at week one to re-rank the top three commons in each color. We're we're mostly in agreement, at least for these first few colors, and then as we move down, we'll, we'll have some disagreements here. Hopefully this will shake out in the next few weeks. So for white, we're looking at number three, Heliod's Pilgrim, number two, Daybreak Chimera, and then number one, Dreadful Apathy. In black, we've got potentially Blightbreath Catabolipus and Venomous Hierophant in the number three slot. I would like to get the Venomous Hierophant in there. That feels a bit like a hot take, but Blightbreath Catabolipus has felt kind of clunky. It's been good anytime you're killing something with, you know, like three, four, five devotion on the battlefield. But a lot of times this has either gotten killed in response to me casting it. It hasn't killed the thing I've wanted to kill. Or like there's just shenanigans that go on like that with it. It's been powerful, but it's on my watch list. All right, you want to let's just let's just do it. Let's call it right now. Venomous Hierophant number three. All right. Number two, Final Death. Number one, Myers Grasp. And I think just a point about how powerful black is. There are past, you know, so Catablepus is good. The three three that escapes back as a five five is good. Lampad is good. There are so many black commons that are good and deep. Yeah, agree with that. In green, I think this this was my initial three. So we've got Warbriar's Blessing, number three, Voracious Typhon, number two, and Elysian Caryatid, number one. Yeah, I think that's where I'm at now as well. Typhon is really close with Caryatid for me. I think I'm still on Caryatid, number one. Warbriar's Blessing has been pretty unimpressive for me. I I don't think there's another card that's better than it yet, but I am... Return to Nature, Doomblade? 
You want to get Doomblade in the top three? Not quite yet. Maybe no. I could see it. It's close. I, I, I'm surprised to hear that because I have been impressed by Warbriar's Blessing. I have found it pretty good for myself and certainly have felt pretty unhappy when my opponent has cast it. Interesting. And then moving on to red, we're in a little bit of a disagreement here. Uh, number one, we agree on Aroas's Blessing. That's the enchant creature, give it plus one, plus one, and deal four damage to an opposing creature. And then some combination of Incendiary Oracle, that's the one in a red, two, two with smoke breathing. And whenever a creature killed by it goes to the graveyard, you exile it instead. And then there's Underworld Ragehound. This is a mover up for both of us. I guess that yeah. neither of us had in our movers up because it's been a quick shooter up the ranks. Um, so one in a red for a three, one has to attack each turn if able, and then you can escape it for three in a red and exiling three cards. And it comes back as a four, two and then Omen of the forge in there as well. That's the red Omen that when it enters the battlefield deals two damage, to any target, and you can pay two in a red to scry two. I think for me, incendiary incendiary Oracle is not in my top red commons, but I, I am on the lookout for it since you have it valued pretty highly. Yeah, I've just found it great as a mana sink, and the exile has been super relevant. Like, you really don't want to tussle with a Typhon in combat with this. Like, I exiled an Uro with Incendiary Oracle yesterday. (laughs) So I'm pretty high on the card right now. I I feel like Underworld Ragehound is, like, a better card than it. But one, Ragehound has diminishing returns. Like, after the second one, you don't really want more because of what we talked about with escape but also people aren't taking the card highly like i don't think it's on people's radars so maybe as as weeks progress then this will like have more of a higher spot because it'll be sought after but right now i don't think it is yeah and then on to blue we have just pretty different rankings here because i think we've had pretty different experiences with blue and i think the cards in blue are very contextual depending on the deck as has been the case recently so my number three is ichthyomorphosis that's the fishify two in a blue turn a thing into an oh one my number two is deny the divine two in a blue for an instant counter target creature or enchantment spell if the spell's countered that way exile it instead of putting it into the graveyard and my number one is thirst for meaning two in a blue instant draw three discard two unless you discard an enchantment so my list is pretty different, but before I get to that, I want to I wanna pull a little, let me ask you this. How many Thirst for Meanings do you want when you end a draft? Three. Really? How do you have time to do that? O5 Turtle, baby. Oh, God. I don't know, man. Like, I, So Thirst for Meaning for me, I think I'm just lower on it than the rest of the world, and probably because I just haven't encountered these blue control decks yet. But even so, I just can't imagine really wanting more than one maybe two just because like i don't know how you have time for that and i get that it plays really well with deny the divine with vexing gull with memory drain like that it lets you do stuff on your opponent's turn which is very good for blue control decks but i just don't feel like i need to prioritize it because yeah yeah if i don't get thirst for meaning then i have you know i can grab some omens or whatever like i will have ways to generate card advantage in blue yeah the omens don't net you cards though like it gets you a card and some scries the omen's very good as well yeah but thirst only nets you a card if you're discarding an enchantment well but later in the game you pitch two lands and you keep your action sure i i understand how the card works but like (laughs) i'm just saying that's not netting you cards yeah fair enough um so my experience with blue has been assertive in these blue green constellation decks i drafted a blue red deck once and i was really unhappy with it and it also did not perform well so i'm i'm prioritizing removal and threats here so i've got vexing gull number three that's the two two flash flyer that's a mover up for me as well uh i think that card is kind of sneaky good and on number two i've got witness of tomorrow that's the sphinx the 
four and a blue three four enchantment creature that has three and a blue scry one tacked onto it and then number one i have ichthyomorphosis um as just like that's blues removal spell and i have not been upset with it right well that should have probably been a mover up for both of us as well yeah yeah. that card has been we've been pretty down on enchantments like this that leave things on the battlefield but what's relevant about those is you can do it on an escape creature and then just not let the escape creature die and try to win in the air or you determine when that card's then going to go to the graveyard it's been very powerful to be able to put that on an escape creature yes i agree yeah i, I really like that card all right that gets us into a round table here ethan Ooh. would you like to take a seat at my first theros beyond death draft i would love to So pack one, pick one. The following cards are in consideration. There's Return to Nature, Relentless Pursuit, Tuna Green, reveal the top four cards of your library. You may put a creature and or land card from among them into your hand, put the rest into your graveyard. That card has been very impressive. Dreadful Apathy, two and a white for the enchant creature aura. Enchanted creature can't attack or block, and you can pay two and a white to exile enchanted creature. And Nessian Wanderer, one and a green for the one three constellation. When an enchantment ETBs, you look at the top three and can put a land card into your hand. Rest go on the bottom of your library in any order. And your rare, Galia of the Endless Dance, red, green for a 2-2 haste. Other satyrs you control get plus one, plus one, and have haste. And whenever you attack with three or more creatures, you may discard a card at random. If you do, draw two cards. Yeah, I mean, if it's early days of a format, I might try and take Galia just to like play with it, see if you can build around it, that sort of thing. Um, but I think the best card in this pack is in a vacuum and also in terms of flexibility is dreadful apathy i agree i did not take that at the time i took nessian wanderer and i think now i would be on dreadful apathy yeah makes sense moving on to pack one pick two see the following cards as options there's an omen of the forge one in a red flash when etbs deals two damage to any target and you can pay two in a red sack it to scry two there's Daybreak Chimera, three white white for the three three, costs X less to cast where X is your devotion to white and has flying. There's Madomai's Prophecy. How do you feel about this one? This is one in a blue, first chapter scry two, second chapter choose a card name, third chapter when you cast a spell with a chosen card name you draw two, and then chapter four look at the top card of each player's library. I got to go off with this with uh, our preview card, the Shimmerwing Chimera, and that felt pretty good. So like being able to pick this up on chapter four and and, uh, Cortical has called this. He was like, I think this is why there is the fourth chapter in these. And the fourth chapter isn't really that good is so that you get to do the thing on chapter three and then you can still pick it up on chapter before chapter four happens. So you get to like rebuy it. Um, So that makes sense to me. I think by and large, the blue omen is better than this. Like on turn two, this is probably better. But otherwise, late in the game, this doesn't give you the thing you want, which is to draw cards for two more turns, which is not great. Yeah, I think that all makes sense to me. And there's also inevitable end in the pack. I think I'm a bit a little too low on this, and I think I need to move it up in my pick order. This is two and a black enchant creature. Enchanted creature has at the beginning of your upkeep, sacrifice a creature. I mean, why do you want to move this card up? This card is still kind of bad right i mean it's it's fine it's fine it's fine i think it's a removal spell for anything that's not a bomb which is like a fine card yeah i I still don't like that your opponent gets to choose like well if i want to keep this this one thing around then i can sacrifice my useless stuff every every time my opponent has cast this i have sacrificed the thing it's been on yes i have two but it's only been once but i have i have as well i mean it's been cast against me enough times that i feel like okay it's good i mean it's not it's not good it's just kill a medium thing it's like it's like two and a black kill something with power three or less or something you know like it's a fine card that's fair all right maybe maybe i'll move it up then black just has like so many good uncommons yes it does yeah so this is a really i think pretty strong-ish pack with the dreadful apathy as your first pick i think taking like 
one of the only good, one of the only white cards, period, but been one of the best white commons. You know, start off with the best white common, take the second best one, pick two. That seems pretty good to me. But I, I could see, like, you know, if you, t- you could have taken the red green rare, and then there's the red green uncommon here in Warden of the Chain. So that could have been a route. But I like going white card into Daybreak Chimera. Yeah. And even with the Nessian Wanderer, I was on Daybreak Chimera here. How do you feel about white as a color in Theros Beyond Death? I think it's fine. I think that white definitely has more routes to be a controlling shell than I initially thought, because I think the heroic stuff really didn't get there. But I, I think white can do assertive stuff as well. Like the, the drop off happens pretty drastically after the top few commons, though. That's what I think, too. I think it plays a good role as a support color in a controlling deck. But I think if you're going to be aggressive, you have to be heavy, heavy white. And if you don't get there as heavy white aggressive, your deck ends up not being very good. I agree. Moving on to pack one, pick three. See the following cards as options. There's Warbriar Blessing, one in a green enchant creature. When an ETB's enchanted creature fights up to one target creature you don't control, an enchanted creature gets plus O plus two. There's Venomous Hierophant, three and a black for the three, three death touch. When an ETB's put the top three cards of your library into your graveyard, there's Karametra's Blessing as the only white card in the pack. White instant target creature gets plus two, plus two until end of turn. If it was an enchanted creature or enchantment creature, it also gets hexproof and indestructible. And then uncommon-wise, there's the red-black uncommon Slaughter Priest of Mogis, 2-2. Whenever you sacrifice a permanent, Slaughter Priest of Mogis gets plus 2 plus 0 until end of turn, and you can pay 2, sacrifice another creature or enchantment to give Priest of Mogis first strike until end of turn. Yeah, I really like Slaughter Priest. I I had a red-black sacrifice deck with four of them the other day, which was kind of wild. But I don't think I would want to jump ship. I mean, it's a little disconcerting to be in pick 3 and see, like, basically no white cards, but I don't really want to abandon my first two picks and take something like Slaughter Priest here. I think taking just one of the best, you know, one of our top green commons in Warbriar Blessing here is totally fine. Yeah, that's what I ended up on as well. And there's a rare and an uncommon missing, so you can't take much away from signaling about colors yet. Yeah. Moving on to pack one, pick four, you see the following cards as options. There's Thirst for Meaning, two in a blue instant, draw three, discard two, unless you exile an enchantment card. There's Indomitable Will as the only white card in the pack. That's one in a white for the flash enchant creature. Enchanted creature gets plus one, plus two. And then still hanging out in the pack in the uncommon slot is Destiny Spinner, one in a green for the two, three enchantment creature. Creatures and enchantment spells you control can't be countered. And three in a green, target land becomes a creature equal to your devotion to green with trample and haste. Yeah, that card is really strong. Um, It's just like great stats. Good on turn two, good on turn 10, that sort of thing. I've really liked Destiny Spinner a lot. I do want to mention here that there is a Temple of Enlightenment still in the pack. So that's the white, blue, rare land. And I've gotten this question enough because I've done it a few times so far. You play this, if you're a white green deck, you play Temple of Enlightenment. You play a tapped land that lets you scry one, even if it's not, even if you don't care about both colors. I agree. So that's just like, a word of advice to everybody, you should be playing these temples. And I think picking them, you know, I think if Destiny Spinner were not here, that would be my pick out of this pack. Uh, it's close for me with Indomitable Will, but I could see it for sure. Moving on to pack one, pick five. So we've got the following cards in our pile, Dreadful Apathy uh, and or Nessian Wanderer, Daybreak Chimera, Warbriar Blessing and Destiny Spinner. See the following cards as options. There's literally no green cards in the pack, which is a yikes. Mm-hmm. Best white card in the pack is probably Captivating Unicorn. Four and a white for the 4-4 Constellation whenever an enchantment enters the battlefield under your control. Tap target creature and opponent controls. Best card in the pack is probably Venomous Hierophant. That's three and a black for the 3-3 Death Touch when it ETBs you mill three. 
and Whirlwind Denial is still hanging out as the only uncommon in the pack. It's two and a blue for the instant. For each spell or ability your opponent's control, counter it unless its controller pays four. This may be wrong, but I'm going to take a card here that you didn't mention, which is Nyxborn Courser. That's the one white, white, two, four. Like, that just plays so well with Daybreak Chimera, and I don't see a reason to go away from white at this point. Like, nothing is so strong. Nothing feels like a signal to me here in pick five to make me abandon white yet. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Nyxborn Courser has been impressive as an enabler in the heavy white devotion decks. Mm-hmm. Uh, turns out you would have taken a better route through this draft than me because pack two, we open a Heliod, God of the Sun, and I Ooh. didn't I didn't quite get there on white devotion to really enable it. So stuff like Nyxborn Courser here would have paid off. And that's that's what you want to be is really results oriented about your draft picks. <laughs> well, <laughs> it is one of the things I was talking to Amaz about last night on stream was that you do get rewarded in a certain sense for getting deeper into another color. Like, there's no reason for me to take Whirlwind Denial here, right? Like, I have no blue cards, and it's not good enough that I'm going to be playing blue, and I am very likely to play white at this point, yeah. es- especially if you first pick Dreadful Apathy. Yes. So, and, and Nyxborn Courser is likely to make your deck. Like, you should just take Nyxborn Courser here and not Wiffle Waffle around quite so much. And if people are interested, I do plan to highlight the VOD of Amaz and I's discussion. We, he was on stream for about two hours and a lot of interesting interesting ideas about draft and things to think about for sure. So we'll link that in our Lords of Limited Discord. And if you're interested but not in the Discord, uh, feel free to head out to my Twitch stream and check out that VOD. Nice. I look forward to it. Yeah. Great place to wrap us up there. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. If you want to come check us out on Twitch and Twitter, I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you have any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we will be coming at you fresh off the heels from GP New Jersey. If you are heading out there, please make sure you come and say hi, and we will see you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. See you all next week. Would you say that it's very similar to Palace Siege? Oh, is that the that's is that what you said? That's what I said in the survey. <laughs> Point for Ben. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. I'm feeling I got low self-esteem because of my win rate here, so I'm lashing out. Oh my god. <laughs>